So I have a buddy who's a filmmaker, and we were having lunch, and he said, this is this woman you really got to meet. She was a Black Panther who became a Buddhist. And I'm like, and she's local? He has absolutely. I said, I've got to meet this person. You had me at Black Panther. And sure enough, it took me several weeks, actually several months, but I met Maya Carr. We met at the Artist's Palette, Artisan's Palette, great restaurant on the back patio. So it's a little bit noisy in the background, but we had lunch there. She asked to say grace, and we had this very spiritual conversation, which I love. It goes all over the place. Maya Carr. When you're in prison, mm -hmm. it does not matter if you're a prisoner or a visitor. When they close that, lock that facility down, you're a prisoner. <laughs> this is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hello and greetings and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson, and this is my podcast in which I listen to absolutely fascinating women tell me just incredible stories from their lives. And I can't say how grateful I am to Mike Davis for introducing me to his Tai Chi instructor. And we learn all about that and her just incredible history, life history in 74 years, almost three-fourths of a century on this planet. Maya Carr. Where were you born? Concord, North Carolina. Hospital or home? Hospital, Cabarrus Memorial Hospital. That's when it was a one building, not like it is now. Did she tell you anything about her pregnancy, like whether it was a hard labor, whether it was a hard pregnancy? No, never. Never even thought of that. Did she tell you anything when you were about to become a mother that helped you? Uh, you mean physically or just be a mother? How do you mean that? Both. Um, well, I, I was a young mother. I had my daughter when I was 20. I was tw turning 21. And um, that was a time, one of those times in my life that sometimes Young people get to a place they don't want to hear what their parents have to say. Uh, that was for me a short period of time <laughs> at that time. But uh, she would, you know, things like taking herbs and um, making sure that the, the baby was fed and protected. Just those basic things. Cover the head when you go, when you take them out outside. Don't let people kiss your baby. People are germy. <laughs> I mean, those kinds of things. <laughs> Keep them clean, you know, mm -hmm, those things. It was interesting with that. I did play handball when I was pregnant, and she didn't think that was such a good idea, just because of the stress it would put on. I guess she thought the baby and me. But it kept me active, and I think it helped me. It was easy at that time because we made our formula. It was just my great-great-grandmother was an herbalist, so things like get a baby peppermint for colic and those kinds of things. But nothing in terms of life experience conversations. Now the herbalist, was that your mother's mother? That was my mother's great-grandmother. Oh my word. Mm -hmm. So you knew your great-great-grandmother? Yes. Was she in Concord? Yes. 
So what kind of herbs did she teach you to use other than peppermint? Well, she used all kinds of herbs. See, I was a little girl and she had an herb garden. So she would send, she was a spiritualist and a midwife. And um, she delivered most of the babies in Concord around that time, white and black. And so people would come to her for prayer and for herbs and to, for healing, so to speak. What was her name? Joanna Brewer. What does spiritualist mean? She, they would come to her for prayer and for guidance um, and direction. So in that kind of way, she would always direct them back to God and to Christ in terms of their journeys on earth and those things. People would come to her. She was wise, but there are many wise people who are not Christian. Right. Yeah. But yeah, she, um, she believed in Christ. I don't, she would go to churches, she would take me to churches in what we call the woods at that time. Now at that time Concord was totally a rural little small town. We had one traffic light and the dirt roads, that was basically it. But she would take me and my brothers to church in the woods and there wouldn't be any light and we'd be following her, she'd have the lantern. And uh, she would take us to these old time revivals. And when you say in the woods, would it be a building in the no. woods? No. Or would they have a tent? Uh, yeah, sometimes they would have a tent, but sometimes they would just be around the campfire. We all sang, but there was a preacher. Yeah, and sometimes my grandmother would officiate, you know, lead the, the service. But I do remember they were the old time uh, spirituals that black people sang in terms, there was, if we had anything, it would have been maybe a banjo. The rest of it was body clapping and clicking and those kinds of things and singing, keeping rhythm that way. Now, what denomination or faith or was there one? I'm assuming it was Baptist. Uh -huh. That's an assumption because my family does, in terms of Christianity, run through that, the Baptist, the Southern Baptist line. So that's, that's my assumption, but I, I do not know that. Um, would people speak in tongues? Yes. And would people like fall out when they were? Yes. Was it scary or was it? I don't remember it being scary at all. I just, it's, it was sort of like, that's the way it is. Hmm. You know, when people get the Holy, Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, that's what happens. That, it was sort of like that inside. Did you ever experience that yourself? Yes, I have. What does it feel like? Well. It's different. So in church, when I felt it, it's different than because I've uh, been blessed to engage in other spiritual practices from different uh, religions, mostly African. Um, so out of Yoruba, out of Nigeria, the AGs, out of Senegal. So in my late um, teen, uh, early adolescent, early. Uh, I don't know what that phase is called, but say between 21 and 30. What do they call it? Childhood. Protracted <laughs> adolescence. <laughs> yes, I like it. But uh, during that time uh, <clears throat> is when I engaged in the more non-Christian non practices. And that's when I experienced it from that point of view. But from as a young child, um, uh, if I can remember, it's, it's a while. I think that 
I remember it just being an overwhelming kind of feeling and I could hardly catch my breath. That's sort of how I was able to catch my breath, but that's how the feeling was. Like being sort of overwhelmed? Uh-huh, or overtaken, yeah. Overtaken yeah. by this force kind of thing. Again, it was a physical sensation of almost uh, the, the ground sort of like uh, falling out. And so I think of it like it was a spaceship, kind of. Feel the earth fall, peeling away, I don't know the words. So it was a visceral kind of experience. You could kind of, I felt that. Almost um, detached from this dimension. Yeah, this plane is sort of like um, what I perceived of my physical body, which didn't happen, but it felt like it was my physical body. Like you said, the gravity suspending itself, for lack of a better word. And I felt just sort of maybe an ascension experience. It sounds like from the time of childhood you were always a spiritual like seeker or you were never like I only believe in science, I only believe in what I can touch, I only believe in this one dimension. That's true, that's true. I've always been open to diff different things and different ways of being and you know different experiences. Did your mother encourage that, or did she say, you need to stick with the church? No, my mother didn't say that. Um, she, she went to church sometimes, but she didn't... It was my grandmothers who were the regular church goers and would take us. Uh, as my mother got older, she went every, weekly, but in her earlier years, she would make sure we went to church, but she wouldn't necessarily take us. <laughs> um... Did they spank you? Uh, in my household? Yes. Yes, they were Southern Baptist family. They believe in uh, corporal punishment, for lack of a better word. But yeah, they did. My mother used switches. She was, uh, my father, my dad wasn't the uh, disciplinarian in the household. Uh, he never was, he didn't like it at all. My mother used to have to make him do it sometimes. <laughs> she was. <laughs> He would go get the switches, because when she sent us to get the switches, we'd get the little ones that if you hit the person once, it breaks. <laughs> he'd get the one, you like this, and it springs back. Oh, God, don't send him for the switches, please. <laughs> What's an example of what you would get switched for? Um, I wasn't a child that got a lot of switching, so mm -hmm. I just didn't need to say that. Uh, my mother was interesting. She... Um, if it was something dangerous and she had told you uh, several times not to do it, you you would get a switching for it. Um, I would. Uh, I think my brother, she was different. My brother who never, she, she expected us to follow her rules. And so it was only up until a certain point that you were not following her rules that you would get a switching. She wouldn't start out with that. She would start out with, you know, giving you the eye, the look, <laughs> then, you know, then, the, okay, now, <laughs> and then maybe after two or three of those, then the switch comes out. <laughs> she wouldn't reach for the switch first thing. No, no, she wouldn't. You'd get plenty of warning. No, you'd get plenty of warning, and I would heed that warning for the most part. My brother would not, he wouldn't. 
hard-headed. Yeah, that's what mother called him. He would get switched a lot. <laughs> yeah. Me and my other brother, this is the middle one. We tell him, just do what mom said. <laughs> um, when you were a little girl, uh, how would your mother have described you? What was your personality or temperament? Um, they, she called me a crybaby because, you know, I, I, I'm soft. Things make me cry. And it's not only just bad things, it's things touch me and they bring tears to me. So cry baby, her and my brothers, they sometimes, she wouldn't say it a lot, but sometimes she would say it, especially when we're talking about things and she see the tears well up in my eyes. And uh, so that, um, Dirt Dauber was uh, my, uh, uh, one of my nicknames. What did that mean? Well, I used to love to play in the red dirt mm. and eat it. So mm. she sent me out all dressed up in my crindolin slip and everything. Um, by the time she came and got me, I got red dirt everywhere. <laughs> so she called me a dirt dobbler. That um, dirt dobbler used to be a, like a wasp. Right? It is a wasp. I found out as I got to be an adult. It is. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. I thought that was describing me. <laughs> but those kinds of things. Um, she would basically that she knew. I might cry. There is sun back here. Yeah. Fantastic. And it's warm. Okay. And we got a... And we got a blanket. Yeah. We're doing okay, guys. Yeah. Doing very well. Thank you. Thank you. And, um... I think that, for the most part, she kind of liked that. She wasn't... My mother wasn't a name caller too much. She would have some, some little things that she would refer to or something like, oh, no, you're going to get rid of cry. You do a cry, baby. Those things. But she wasn't other than that not too much or dirt was one of my nicknames but that sounds like what today we would call an empath somebody who's very feeling mm -hmm. like felt their feelings mm -hmm. and felt other people's feelings exactly yeah exactly i still do somebody who's feeling deeply mm -hmm. but if you're not careful you can get burned up by other people's feelings. Well, if you don't learn, it's a learning. So you learn that um, it's up to you how much of it you take on. You can experience it without taking it on. And that's what you, that's what, that's the thing I've learned, the distinction. To experience what I experience from different people, but I don't have to internalize it as my own. Hmm. Sort of like, let it, it, be aware of it, but let it pass through me. Yeah. Because it's important to acknowledge it, but you don't have to hold it. You don't have to keep it. You don't have to make it your own. That's a choice. You can choose to do that or not. And it doesn't mean you don't care. It just means you choose not to take it on. When you were a young woman, were there things that you took on? A lot. Like what? Things, anything. I mean, I... I my brother, for instance, a physical example. I had an older brother who used to throw up. <laughs> he, I guess this didn't have a good stomach. But I hated when he threw up because then I wanted to throw up. And I ended up throwing up. <laughs> and so you had to learn. <laughs> had to learn. That was his, not mine. <laughs> but I felt his place because I hate to throw up. 
but I had to learn over time that that was him throwing up, not me. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that that's sort of like true in life as well. And people, I know that there is what we call suffering in the world. And because I am a sensitive person and an empath, I experience that. But that doesn't mean it is mine. Mm. It's for me to allow it to move through me and hopefully in my own in my own way transform it some way in that moving through. Or oh, when it's time to feel some other person's grief, but still not attached to it. It's, an, it's a Buddhism, it's not attachment. Mm-hmm. People have referred to this as detaching, detaching with love, detaching. Okay, and Buddhism is s- non-attachment. Surrendering, mm-hmm. acceptance, okay. or let go, just okay. letting go. Um, but it is an internal conscious act. It doesn't happen automatically for people who are sensitive because they feel these things. And unless they've been able to develop some of these internal things to let it go, then they, they walk around in that suffering. So it's important to feel it because it's true and real, but it does not, it's also important for the individual not to hold it. It goes back to your faith. What do you believe? Do you believe that there is a force in creation that caused everything to exist, that presented all of this before us, and that it has a divine purpose or not? That is the question. So for me, I do believe that. And although I may not be able to see it from like a f- baby ant point of view when you're looking at the whole world, I- I'm sure I can't. What do you believe? I do believe that there is a divine that is orchestrating all of this. And who am I to say what it should or should not be? So what I do, I feel it, I take it in, I try to transform it through love. And then I allow the divine to do what, what's happening. How do I know? Did that um, faith or belief in the divine come from great great grandmother and down I believe so I actually believe it came from my ancestry as a descendant of African slaves we had to believe else we wouldn't have made it we had to because if you look to the world for love or justice <laughs> or mercy. Or for the answer. So to me it's always goes back to your faith. What do you believe? White man wasn't gonna teach you mercy and Mm-mm. although some did. Some came through that savior experience and they assisted mm. in people who were trying to be free. Some died for that as well. So part of the great outpouring and I don't understand it all and I don't know if I need to. All I need to know is this little place I'm standing in today. Um, So what was the evolution of you? Like you didn't start out in Concord, North Carolina as a little girl in crinoline understanding the concept of the Buddha. So how were you introduced to Buddhism? It's funny you should say that because 
it really was my great-great-grandmother, Joanna. She introduced me to these concepts of greater than thou. So we used to go to these prayer meetings you know, in the woods. And I was a little girl, very afraid, as you might imagine, because she had a lantern and she's walking in head. And then, okay, I can see the lantern there, but what about all around me and behind me? And, you know, the this is like the 1950s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so I was very, very fear fearful, and that's when she taught me the 23rd Psalms. And that rooted that in me, that there is, sure, there may be evil to the, the darkness to the left and to the right of us, me, but I am a child of God, and I'll always be protected. Does that mean I won't die? That does not mean that, because we're all going to die. Does that mean that I won't suffer? That does not mean that either. But if you believe in the faith and the scriptures, the promise was, I will never leave you. So even through all of this that we suffer through, we're not alone. Even if you're physically, like, alone, isolated from other human beings, can't call them on the phone, they're not in the room, there's a sense of being connected to what? Your inner source, where you came from. I had a friend used to say, you have to remember who you are, a child of God, and whose you are, a child of God. <laughs> and if you can remember that through the difficult times and persist, that's how you get through. No promise on the other side, because we don't know what the other side thinks, but that's how you get through. Uh, you sound like a church lady, but you don't go to church. No, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I believe in Christianity. I believe in the concept of Christ and the Christ principle on, on earth, which is love. So Buddhism is not a religion, it's a practice. So Buddhism is hand in hand with whatever I believe because it's a practice. I must put it into practice. Faith is an action word. I must behave that way. Behave the way, if we're looking at Christ as a model for it, Christ did during the times that they were. They didn't have the internet and all that, but surely it wasn't fun <laughs> when they lived. <laughs> How? He says, follow me. That means do as I do. Do what I do as I did it, knowing you know, that we are all the same, we are all one from the original creator, that we are all in our humanness bound to make errors, bad judgments, bad behaviors, all of those. But that, if we're willing to work it, we are redeemable. How did you first learn about Buddhism? As a martial artist, and I've been martial artist for years, it's sort of like in the periphery of martial arts that concept is there. So it wasn't unfamiliar to me, but when I um, went to college, I went to Long Island University in, in Brooklyn, New York, I took uh, a, a year's course in comparative religions. And I began to study Buddhism and other religions and begin to get an intellectual understanding of it. And uh, it just uh, uh, reinforced my, the way I felt about it. So how were you introduced to the martial arts? Um, so, how old were you? I was in my early 20s is when I was introduced to martial arts. And it was just through 
Uh, first of all, just watching the martial arts films, you know, those kind of things. Bruce Lee? Yeah, Bruce Lee. Well, Bruce Lee is one of the, his style is one of the ones that I did practice and study for a while, Jeet Kune Do, the fighting style. But, um, so, I've all, I had always been interested, so when I was in college, um, one of the, what's college? Yeah, uh, they had a, an elective in Aikido. And I thought it was a great way to spend my elect one of my electives, because I had was taking I majored in psychology, so a lot of my electives were around psychology. But I really wanted to do that Aikido class and be have good credit for it. So that's that was my introduction to to actually practicing martial arts Aikido. Did you get in fights in high school? No. Middle school. I, I didn't get in a lot of fights. Hmm. I, I just didn't. I did. I was a my hat four brothers, so I, I, I still now know how to fight. <laughs> you have four brothers, you're a girl. Either you're going to be a serious victim or you're going to learn how to fight. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so um, <clears throat> I didn't, I typically didn't, I didn't get in fights. If it was a fight, it was children's things like, you, why you say that about me? <laughs> I mean, you know, the things the kids fight about. Uh, but no, no, not really. And then my uh, older brother, Lester, um, he was an interesting character. When our story, he and our story, besides being my older brother's first oldest, I had two older than him. There's one older, and then he was next to me. Is that he used to punch me in my stomach every day. So my mother, of course, then he would get a whipping. <laughs> this is the one with the whipping thing I was talking about. <laughs> but uh, I learned a lot from him is how to fight, how to fight back. How to take a punch. I mean, he taught me a lot of things. I don't even know where, where this conversation is going into that part of it. And what was the original question again? <laughs> well, nowadays, kids don't know how to handle this adolescent anger, and they have these terribly destructive guns. And so the broader community is caught in the crossfire. And I'm wondering how someone such as yourself, who seems to be, well, you are soft-spoken and peaceful, a great-grandmother, what we can say to kids who are not even teenagers yet about the ability to process an almost inevitable rage that comes with hormones, adolescence, a feeling of disrespect peer-to-peer, -peer, but also in the culture. I do think that the elders, um, and that's of all of the races, because sure, you see it in the black community, but you see it, just see it. There are white boys yes, filled with rage. We failed our children. We didn't teach them, begin early enough to teach them how to manage this stuff. Because once you, your hormones are raging, it is a totally different conversation than along the way that we engage you. When you're out of control, send you to your grandma. I'm sending them over there, calm them down, talk to them, whatever. Go to grandma. 
<laughs> you know, she'll tell you when to come back home or those kinds of things. Come over here, boy. Let me let me talk to you. Sit down. Old timers. That's what they used to do. The the women the women the get get the little girls in the ki- in the kitchen doing hair and cooking and come on. Well, who you you what that little boy saying to you over there? I <laughs> mean, you know, those kind of conversations. We have to begin and then begin to direct them into how to manage and handle the stuff because this stuff comes out of somewhere. They don't just kind of go rage. It is built to rage. Not good, I think, coping skills and communication skills and a lack of knowledge of the history. That's why I say I think that we have failed them. We've given these electronic devices, which are good, but they cannot substitute from that for, for that stuff. What were you able to give your daughter, your grandkids, your great-grandkids? What have you been able? Because you became that grandma that mm-hmm. they were sending kids to. They still do. They still do. <laughs> and, I, and I really like that, that sometimes when my daughter, um, she, she'll send them to me for in particular ways, direct them to me. Um, so I do like that. And uh, so what I've been able to give to them, I hope, is first of all, love, that they know I love them, honesty and truth. They know that I will tell them the truth, okay? Um, that they know that I will protect them when I can. By those things through love and honesty and dealing with it in that way. And, and I will also give them my honest opinion of things. I don't expect them necessarily to follow it, and I'll say that. But my, part of my role is to tell you the truth and give you my honest opinion. What you do is up to you. And that's how I do all of them, even the little ones, the ones that I sometimes have to um, discipline, the smaller one. If, okay, you go, go to the corner. When they come out of the corner, first of all, there's no crying in the corner. It's a wall. <laughs> in the corner, there's no crying, no leaning on the wall. <laughs> we have rules to stand up there and think about why you're here. And I do it age appropriately. So the younger ones, maybe they get two minutes. <laughs> it's a long time for a little kid, two minutes facing the wall. And then I bring them out of there, and then we talk about, okay, go to the bathroom, clean yourself up. Okay. What happened? So why are you crying? Why are you in the corner? Because whatever it is, and then we have a discussion about this particular thing. Then I say, okay, we come to a resolution. Okay, we agree, we, we good, we good, okay. Give them a kiss, beat it, go back in there, play with your sister. That's how I do them, to teach them how to have these moments, how to take some time for yourself in these moments. But when you come back, you don't have to carry all of that with you. You can be refreshed. You, in a sense, served your time. You're two minutes in the corner, <laughs> you know. You were born just after World War II? 1949. Uh, so you're 10 years older than me, so okay. you're mid-70s now, right? Mm-hmm, 74. Okay. Um, that means that you were in New York. You left Concord and went to high school in New York. Yes. Um, that means that... And junior high, by the way. They had junior high school in New York. That means that you were just coming of age um, during what they would call the struggle. So... Which struggle? Well... They would call it uh, the time in which Martin Luther King and Malcolm X... Oh, the civil rights struggle. Correct. Yeah, okay. 
Because I just say because we've been struggling ever since we've been here as black people. But that's when I had to 400 say. years. <laughs> that's what I wanted to say. What struggle are we talking about? <laughs> um, so, um, Malcolm X mm-hmm. and um, Martin. Martin were seen as in conflict when later on shortly before their deaths, they were, they could see. Um, what, what do you remember about that time and what did it mean to Maya? Maya. Maya, mm-hmm. my, forgive me. Yes, so I know that in the media they were saying that there was this conflict between Martin and Malcolm. It was really, it was, it's just a different of opinion in terms of how can we move our people forward. They met together, they spent time together, they did things, but in, in that work they had two different points of view in terms of how to do this. And I, and I understood it totally because I'm a child of the South. I understood Martin because the haters would just come in, burn the place down, kill everybody. He had to find another way to present this truth, this terrible thing that was happening, and continue without provoking violence for those people who were waiting for us to provoke violence. Dogs on us, just all lynchings outside, just everything. So that was Martin's task, and I got that. So Malcolm, Malcolm was in the North, you know, Chicago to New York, his thinking was different, okay? He believed that, you know, f- freedom at all costs. It wasn't an issue for him to think about if you won't do it the peaceful way, we'll take up arms in order to get it done. So it was a philosophical difference. It wasn't that they were at odds with each other. It was just a philosophical difference as to how we can move our people forward into freedom. Um, as a white baby boomer, born in the Deep South, Macon, Georgia. Um, There's this concept of white allies, Mm -hmm. like Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney, two out of three were white. Mm -hmm. There was no place for a white ally in the Nation of Islam. Well, that's the nation. It has its own issues, okay? Well, but Malcolm X came out of the nation. Well, I know that, but that's still the nation. It's a segmented, a very separate part of who we are, black people are as a people. But yeah, it is the nation. Yeah, yeah. Um, Walk me through your thinking about that, like, um, because I'm personally interested in, like, whether it's the 60s or now, in the 21st century, um, other than attempting to understand our own history, um, profoundly problematic history in the South, uh, what, what, uh, how can I help? It's a legitimate question and I do appreciate that question. The history of freedom and freedom fighters throughout the world, I believe, has uh, been mired with people who wanted to help of all races and stripes and things. 
And without those people, I, I think the movements, all of these movements of freedom and rights and things would, would be lacking something very important. So I do think it's important that all of us engage in that uh, work to free, to free humanity from oppression and all those things. So, like I said, and I say often that even during uh, slavery periods, there were Caucasians who helped tremendously. They died. They taught us how to read sometimes and gave us shelter. And so it's not just the entire group, um, but the truth of the matter, it was a lot. So for people now, I just say keep speaking the truth. You know, seek, be a truth teller. Um, the thing that absolutely riveted me was when our mutual friend Mike Davis, who introduced us, said that you taught Tai Chi and he said that you had been somehow affiliated with the Black Panther movement. <laughs> and I was like, I have got to meet this woman. Can you tell me about the, your well, experience I'll with tell the you about Yeah, I'll tell you about my experience. So, um, I've always been, I guess I get it from my grandmother, uh, I guess a freedom fighter in a way that I want the best for people. You know, I think I get it from my great-great-grandmother. She's just wanted that. But, um, so that's sort of in my core. It's like in, inside of me. So, but so when I went to, um, when I went to, uh, let's see, so when did it start? It in, the, in the ninth, so school. So, of course, I started in Long Island University in 1973. And I had always been, because my grandmother um, was an herbalist and the spiritualist pray over people and all those things. I'd always been interested in healing work. And so um, when I got to high to college, uh, because I was really, I was on track for uh, pre-med. But once I took my second semester of college courses, I realized that um, the, the deficits in the education received by African Americans in terms of the sciences. So when I, in pre-med, you take a lot of science courses, chemistry, physics, you take a lot of that. And I struggled deeply with it because the foundation wasn't there. So it's not that I couldn't have suffered through those years and maybe made a C, which was never an acceptable thing in my mother's house. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then now, uh, so I decided to change my major to psychology and early childhood education. So I shifted over, and so in that shifting, um, I met my first, my second uh, Sifu. Um, his name was Kamu, and we started studying. Everyone who knew me knew that I was interested in alternative healthcare and herbology and everything. They just in acupuncture. I was like acupuncture. I was just so excited about acupuncture. And so um, we were in in dojo one class one day, and one of the students said, "She says, you know, there's an acupuncture school in the Bronx." And when she said that to me, heaven <laughs> me. I was like, what? So she says, yes, in the Bronx, and I brought you a brochure because everyone who knew, knew me knew I loved it. So I went up there to the Bronx. It was Lincoln, uh, it was Lincoln Hospital. So I went up there, and um, the rest, so they say, is history. So I met a group of people who, Matula Shakur, uh, Richard Delaney, Wafia, 
and Walter and Wafia were Muslims. Uh, Richard was just a regular, you know, black person. <laughs> and then Walter was a Latina, he was a, a Hispanic man. And they um, were starting a school in classical Chinese acupuncture. And I wanted, of course I signed up immediately for that. And I just got stuck there. I, I didn't want to leave. I never wanted to leave the whole time I was there. And we began to, they began to teach us classical Chinese acupuncture. So Walter and them, they had had an opportunity to travel to Ontario to study with Oscar and Mario Wexu of the, Montre the Montreal Acupuncture Association. I think that they gifted them with, the, or scholarship them so that they could get their certifications or degrees at the time. I'm not exactly sure what they gave uh, in classical Chinese acupuncture. They were community-based people and they believed in community. They were Muslims, so when they came back, <clears throat> earlier than that in New York City, uh, healthcare was decentralized. So each little section, like I lived in East New York, and East New York, Brownsville, and some of the others, we had uh, a health center and Department of Health Center where we would go for health you know, issues. We wouldn't go to the hospital, we'd go to that little center. So, but as the time went on, they defunded those community clinics and they were just bare standing there. So Matulu and the group, they took that one over and cleaned it up because it was like dilapidated. The city wasn't doing anything with it. And they started hosting classes, those classes up on the second floor. And then they put out a call and a lot of people came and decided they was gonna practice classical Chinese acupuncture and study it. And then we, after the first, I think, semester, they decided to open up a clinic downstairs. And that was called Lincoln Detox School of, uh, uh, Lincoln Detox Clinic. And we're acupuncture, acu-detox, where we administered auricular acupuncture to countless people in the community and anybody else who would come. So it's a community uh, acupuncture sit up, so they had chairs around. People come and clean their ears and have a seat, and then we would clean ourselves, of course, and then go give them the acupuncture. <clears throat> and they would sit there for their half an hour, and then we'd go get them and give them the information on some of them were uh, dealing with substance abuse issues, so we'd give them information about NA and those kinds of things and send them on their way. And they'd come back the next day, and they'd come back the next day. So Matul Shakur was the leader of that group. He was an acupuncturist, but he also was a revolutionary. He believed in Africa for the Africans, the home and the poor. And he did everything he could to, uh, to propagate that belief in that thinking here in the United States. He believed that, the, uh, as far as I remember, that the system was rigged against us and that, um, you know, we have to do something. And part of our work is to present an alternative to wellness, to our acupuncture. So he did one of, he taught us many things, but one of the things he taught us is that as long as the means of healthcare is solely in the hands of our oppressors, we will never be free. And he used to teach that to us and so we understand that we had the tools to share with people to begin to deal with their healthcare. And so that's how it came about. So of course, in, during that time, he did belong to, uh, the East, East Coast Panther Party. He belonged to a variety, they affiliated with a variety of other groups like the FALN and various ones because they were 
groups who believe in freedom for the people. And um, yeah, so that that was how I got connected with Matulu in that group and how it shaped my thinking about how I can make a difference in the world. And so they, as it became more, uh, the, administ- the way I perceived it, the administrators and the people who were watching us, we were under scrutiny by the FBI all the time, um, didn't want this to happen. They didn't want people to take control of the health care. So they start threatening them, threatening us, and then that's when he began to teach us that, you know, at any point they may come through the store and take this from us. So you learn as much as you can, and if they take their ne- your needles from you, then use your hands, teach the people this. So. It did. He came to fruition, and at some point they raided the clinic. They took all our files. They uh, drug him out into jail. He did get out, um, and he did whatever he was doing. And uh, we disbanded, and everyone at that point had to make a decision as to how they were going to continue this work. And so I decided um, that I was wanted to work from within the system instead of without, because those are the choices we're gonna have. Take up arms and work outside of the system, because the system, you had to take up arms because it wouldn't allow you in if you didn't. I mean, it wouldn't even allow you in then, but you standing on the corner picketing and things, it was like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Oh, them again. But so I decided to uh, enter into, to to do this work from the inside. That means bringing health, American system of justice, bringing health care, the Tai Chi and all those things inside instead of outside. I, I worked in Sing Sing at Bedford Hills and uh, I did classes in uh, um, Taconic State Correctional Facenta, uh, Facility, but it still was with the thought of importing some tools on the, the group that they can use in their lives to, to enhance their well-being and further the struggle for freedom. When you're in prison, mm-hmm. it does not matter if you're a prisoner or a visitor. When they close that, lock that facility down, you're a prisoner. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I learned. That's the first thing I learned. <laughs> it's no, well, I'm a, I work here. Go, go have a seat, no movement, everything's locked. Can I, no, you can't leave, nobody can leave. <laughs> Real and true. Yep. It took me about six months to get that, though. It was our first lockdown because I was in a different kind of la-la state, but it was like, oh, yeah, I work in prison and all that, you know, just. Then when they locked us down, the, it got really real. And I said, you know, but for anybody's grace, I could not get out of this place like the people who are prisoners. So I, there was a camaraderie that her, occurred with the prisoners in that, for me in that, in, when that happened. Hmm. And they would tease me sometimes. they say, well, okay, you're back. So it's just the opposite. You go home at night and then come back to prison during the day. <laughs> the ones who had work release, they would tease me. they say, well, we go to work. <laughs> during the day. <laughs> come back to prison at night. <laughs> So who's spending more time here? <laughs> you are. <laughs> you were somehow gratified by this, that you saw that you were 
making a difference. Yeah, you I were, believe that I made, I made a difference. Huh, what did you see that made you think you were making a difference? Well, um, in, in the men's, in, in Sing Sing, I ran this program called Family Does Work. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the men had been in there for long periods of time and hadn't seen their children. And we worked with the um, Women's Prison Association mm-hmm. and the Harper Foundation in New York to set up this relationship where I could go in and teach them parenting skills and then they would have visits, supervised visits, because I was there with their children. And, you know, they were really, really grateful. I never felt threatened or unsafe or any of that stuff with any of them. They were happy to see me because I believe they believed that I cared about them and I wanted to, you know, help, you know, help them spend time with their children. And so that, and in the women's prison, um, they would come often to my office. I had, loosely speaking, an office <laughs> in prison. It was a prison cell didn't have a bed in it. It has a desk in, instead. But they would come to talk and to perhaps seek uh, uh, support in ways, maybe help them in ways that I could. And they knew it was limited, but those kinds of things do escort them to doctor's visits and they were feeling afraid. Um, those day-to-day kind of things. And did they seem to have a healthier or better outlook by virtue of you showing them this? Well, I, I don't know. I saw many women, and they came from a variety of backgrounds and, quote, offenses. But I do believe when they would come, they would come with an air of expectancy that I would try to help them as much as I could. And... Um, I think that that was helpful to them, knowing that there was someone there who cared for them and who would try as much as they could to help them. And sometimes I was able to help a little bit. I had a relationship with the uh, warden of the women's prison, and, you know, she would talk to me sometimes, and I would, when I could, in an appropriate way, express some things about particulars, you know, of the inmates. But it's a very uh, delicate dance but mostly with the health when they were going to to receive their health care I could make sure they escort them and interface with the medical uh, staff sometimes if they were having difficult difficulty with that mm-hmm. when I think about the Panthers as a white boy from the south I think about the berets and the turtlenecks mm-hmm. And like a leather jacket. You mean the Black Panthers, not the Panther team. Right, like not Carolina <laughs> Panthers, the Black Panthers. Right. Um, and I think of like um, revolution and, you know, guns. But now people are saying, had it not been for the Panthers and their breakfast and lunch programs. And school program and, and community school, support. And diapers. Yeah, they ran a lot of drug dealers out of communities as well. Yeah, that there might not have been head start. They may not have been. Um, so They may not have been head start. They may not have been the manpower program that we had in New York City that for the summers you could get a job, the youth could get a job and working as a counselor for the younger people. There were a lot of programs that came out of that, absolutely. Um, how was it that you did not succumb to rage and violence? 
I think being born in the South, Martin, Martin King and Mahatma Gandhi has an influence on me in that way. I really think it is because, um, and also knowing that it, it wouldn't, if it, we, we believe that that is what the oppressors wanted us to do in, in the South and that would give them license to just do whatever they want to. They had that anyway, but they were just looking for one ounce of resistance in order to become, bring their full force of violence against you. And so I think it in, allowed me inside to kind of go to a place where I could be peaceful, and, but then still work on it in other ways. And that's where my relationship with Malcolm and Martin come in. We had the, uh, the options to back in that day to pick up arms. I chose not to for those reasons. I just saw a documentary about the Tiki Torch rally mm -hmm. and the death in Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the white supremacists was taunting the opposition protesters saying, go ahead, throw the first punch in the race war. Um, so there's a sense that there's still that looking for violence. They do. They look for violence from black people. I'll say it like that. The people, not certainly not all people, and certainly not all Caucasians, but those who are ha or in that area, they look for it. They want it. They crave it. And, and it gives them somehow another, I believe, license to become more brutal than they are already. How dare you fight back? Um, plenty of black folks withdraw and simply don't want to be around white people because it's, it takes so much energy. It's so draining. Um, how is it that you're open to and comfortable with being around white people? Uh, because I'm comfortable in my skin. I'm comfortable in, on earth. I'm comfortable being alive. So whatever you, your race or whatever it is. <laughs> as long as you're behaving appropriately, we, we're good. <laughs> That's why. You also seem to be accepting of a person sort of is who they are, not coming with a preconception, like, this isn't the white devil. <laughs> no, I, I typically don't. I typically don't. Uh, you know, and we all have pre in just innate kind of prejudices that sometimes can be present there, but I, I do purpose to be aware of my internal state. And that's a part of, like I said, my faith walk is, I must be aware of my internal state so, because it will reflect my be in my behavior. Um, there's a maturation that happens. Um, you haven't been just twiddling your thumbs all these years. This, this strikes me as working this practice, working this program. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, what's the day-to-day -day of that look like? Okay, uh, I typically try to go to bed reasonably early uh, so that I'm not just like out of sorts uh, the next day. And I get up in the morning, I typically do at least 45 minutes of meditation and mm, when I'm at my best, at least maybe another 40 minutes of Tai Chi, but I get at least maybe 30, 30 minutes in of my own private practice, not preparation for class, but my own practice for myself. So meditation prayers first, and then I do my Tai Chi and go make my whatever breakfast and play one of my games on my computer, then I start working. <laughs> <laughs> administrative stuff or making appointments or those kinds of things. What does meditation look like? Do you sit in the lotus position? Do you play any recording? Do you sit in silence? Well, it can be a meditation to me if we kind of compare it to prayer. So prayer to me is speaking to God. So meditation to me is being still and listening and breathing and allow the essence of the breath, which is in Tai, chi, in tai chi is Chi, that expression of the manifestation of the divine. So I use my breath and, and my focus and concentration. Um, so uh, the position, um, well, and I teach meditation sometimes, you also want to achieve comfort, alignment, and control of your physical body. Because if your physical body is not comfortable, it's going to be hard to meditate. And if it's not aligned, so if I'm like, like leaning over to the <laughs> side, <laughs> it's not going to do. So comfortable, and people, some people have meditation, prayer, chairs, and you know, different things, but yeah. And then, and then control, control has to do with settling your breathing and calming your mind. Mm -hmm. So once that occurs, and after a while, once you initiate your meditation that way, it occurs in a very short period of time, because it's funny how habit happens. Once, once I sit down and get in the mind frame, then I'm sitting and my body begins to make those adjustments, because I'm being mindful of that. So once that happens, then I'll begin my meditation. So I am a Buddhist, so I started uh, my meditation practice with Nishin Shoshu Buddhism, which is Japanese Buddhism. We practice Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. I don't know if you've heard that. Yeah, that's one of the chants. So I started out with that one in terms of my Buddhism, and I, so it's chanting in meditation. So I typically start with some chanting, and then I move into meditation, which is basically is quiet time. So I do, uh, like I said, you want to sit comfortably and quietly. Some people do lotus, half lotus, sit back on the heels. It really, what, what matters is that you're comfortable, what works for you. And those other lotus and half lotus, they become more comfortable to me, is the more you practice it. When you first start out, it, it may not be. So it requires practice to get there. But so I tell people, just comfortable, alignment, control, make sure your back is upright and you're ready to begin feet flat on the floor. So there's different ways of doing it. And then to, and to me, it's to go inward and engage your breathing. You know, become one with your breath allow the outer things to melt away. And that's when we go into a, me, I go into my mindfulness of breathing. And I typically do a little bit of a acupressure points um, just to help with calming the central nervous system. What does that mean? What do you do? There are places in the body that you can use to reset your vagus nerve and to... Like where? 
Uh, well, this vagus nerve reset is different places. There's ways you lay back and you use your eyes. It resets it. You can do it from over here. There's a way under you your in this area. You can do it. Vagus nerve reset can be a vagus nerve is a huge nerve. Net. It mm -hmm. comes down kind of like a net almost. It drapes over all the internal organs. That nerve, but it's connected to all the other nerves as well. So yeah. So once I'm calm. Uh, and then um, I have usually engaged in what I call uh, guided medi um, meditation with seed. So meditation with seed to me is that you have something in your mind that you want to bring into your meditation. So we have visualizations and various things that I use in my meditation. Uh, so that, using the energy, internal energy of your mind and your spirit. But then, so sometimes I'm just meditating quietly and being in what we call Wu Wei in Tai Chi. It's just still. And just breathing and allow the energy of the divine to pass through you, paying attention to what passes through consciously, but not attaching. Um, when you do the chanting, mm -hmm. um, do the words mean something? Yes, they do. And when, when a person's chanting, the words, they, they are words in a way, but they're sounds. Uh, outside, they are words, but internally, it's the sound and vibration. What do the words mean? It depends on what, what it is. What kinds of things do they mean? Well, everybody knows OM. Yeah. So that's the universal sound that uh, resonates with all things and it brings things into alignment. Yeah. I mean, there's different ones, but that's the one that people, a lot of people know. In Nishiren Shoshu Buddhism, we use Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, which it means dedication to the greater law, we call it the mystic law of cause and effect. They believe that what I put out there, I bring back. So it's Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. Kyo is sound and vibration, that knowing that what I put out there, what sounds I make things, has a resonance in the environment, and it brings energy back to me. The creation energy flows through. Um, is it possible to escape that kind of karma in this life, or does it inevitably come back to me in this life? Well, it depends on what you believe. It's not a kind of karma. It is karma. Karma is a concept that, to my understanding, believes that kind of physics, every action is opposite and positive reaction. So if I'm standing here and engage in some kind of reaction, that the way chi flows or energy flows, it will come back. Okay, so uh, it's energy. So my being mindful of what you put out, because you know it's going to be coming back. How it come back? Maybe not in that direct way, but the energy of that. So if I put out energy filled with hate, that is going to return in terms of understanding cause and effect and karma. Now, and I believe that's one of the things that's happening in the world today. It is so much hate and we continue to generate it. More guns, more bombs, <laughs> you know. Oh, I, we can fix this, let's just blow it to smithereens and then there's a bigger bomb. Maybe we just need to, you know, put the guns down and think of a different way. Maybe we should look for love to return, or compassion, or, I don't know, understanding. In the 
sense of putting something out into the world, there's this Well, whole, it's into creation, but yeah, the, we could say the world. Okay, into the universe. Yeah, into, into creation, creation, all of creation. Um, there's the, the New Age concepts of um, attracting or manifesting. Mm-hmm. Um, is it another way of talking about that, or is it uh, simply saying there is no such thing as as action without consequence, like the consequence is born of the action. Well, I don't know what people when they do, but what what for me it is that it's just that it's again remembering who you are. So I'm a I'm a part of the universe of the creation. I was made. I was determined. If you believe in some creator, created you. And everything, and me. Okay. Not so, an accident. Not an accident. Support of that plan that I talked about. In the no beginning. such thing as meaninglessness. Everything has meaning. Whether I can discern it or not. And does that mean that everything has consciousness? It depends on. I think it depends on what level you're having this conversation at. I think that because we are all aspects of the divine and divine and thinking is that great consciousness and say awareness, then yeah. But so okay, so re, uh, reactivity. So I don't know the makeup of this table, but I know that if you apply certain energy to it, it will have a reactivity that changes the shape of this. So it's kind of like that. So what you think is an energy vibration. You send it out. It's easier for me to believe that my dog, my pup, has consciousness than it is for me to believe that the coffee cup has consciousness. Okay. Um, but they both certainly have energy. Mm-hmm. Again, it's always going back to your belief. So the things that make this coffee cup came from everything else in, in existence. The beginning of the universe. <laughs> Do, is there consciousness in that? Is your, the question for you. Was the universe consciously created? Or creation, I like to say, because it's bigger than this. The universe is a small, if you think about creation, but okay. Um, the one thing is, there are certainly uh, laws or patterns and um, you know, we have to acknowledge patterns okay gravity it's a force right mm-hmm. and so when we articulate those we're not imposing our will, we're acknowledging what is. And what we acknowledge is everything came out of nothing. And then goes back. It, there, there is this sort of cyclical kind mm-hmm. of thing. If, if you ascribe to the void theory, so that nothing is the void that 
in the Bible. Nothingness. The was the void. Yes. And the Creator spoke into that void and all things manifested. So, does it have consciousness or not? I'll let you answer that. Well, I believe it does. I, I believe, believe everything, everything does. Yes, because I, I believe there's no such thing in this tactile or understandable universe, the universe that has time and space, that is a complete vacuum. Everything appears to be a medium through which all kinds of waves or particles travel. So, so are you, by the way. Yes. So and am they're, I. And they're going through us. So is this cup. Yes. <laughs> and so in that sense, it was very um, reassuring to me because it said you can never be completely alone. You're always a connected. Part. That's right. You're always a part of this great, great outpouring. And that that connection because of the quantum entanglement what we discover there that connection is not subject to or bound by space and time that there is something which is happening which is mystical which is not subject to space and time right or well, we call it our linear thinking no there is and even a circle, circle made up of a series of little tiny straight lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so what we say in the world of recovery, especially 12-step recovery, is I am not punished by, I'm not punished for my defects or my sins, they carry with them their own punishment. I am punished by them, not for them. Right. There's and not an overarching punisher right. or judge mm -hmm. that is going to punish me for it. The action carries its own punishment with it. It is Conse inextricably yeah. browned up. Yeah, in they're ground, and we call it consequences, but yeah, absolutely. Consequences of your actions. Mm -hmm. And so, so often we wait for the judge to rule or the Supreme Court to rule or someone to make a law. And this is like, well, irrespective of what any human does, you cannot escape things like gravity. So that karma is a force is every bit as real as gravity. And there is no escape from it. And we do not have to depend upon any particular human judge or jury to enforce it. Mm -hmm. Or a person other than ourselves, and that's where, to me, the uh, uh, internal, uh, purposeful living lives with that knowledge. Are you cold? No. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't want to... I'm mindful that I'm taking a lot of your time. Mm -hmm. How much time do we have? Well, we can, we can wrap up at any moment. Okay. I'd, Maybe um, when you get to in the wrap-up point here. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, if we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived 
was this little piece of digital audio. What is your legacy? Love and compassion for the suffering of human beings and others. <laughs> what? Why'd you make that face? Uh, what face did I make? <laughs> I don't know. I think you're reading something into it. <laughs> you just it. got tied in here. That's <laughs> well, I don't want to interrupt you if you oh, had no. something else. No, no, was it. It's just, I think that, that we have to develop compassion for other people's suffering. That don't mean that, to me that you accept you know, unacceptable things, but the deep understanding of of is human nature. Um, do you transmit this through your teaching, like Tai Chi and other things? Well, I hope that I transmit that through my being. That is my desire to behave as we're called to by the Christ and the Buddha. To behave as I believe they would. And that's what keeps them alive in us. I mean, we can talk about them, but if we don't act it out, then it's, where does it live? Do you teach anything other than these Tai Chi courses? I have. I've taught uh, Introduction to Alternative Healthcare, Acupun uh, Astrology, the Symbolic Language of Energy. Uh, I've taught... Uh, Food journaling using the uh, eat right for your blood type model. Um, I have, I have. So, and you've also taught by example <laughs> three more generations. <laughs> uh, that would be from your lips to God's ears. I certainly hope so. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for making time. Thank you. Thank you for the blessing. I receive all blessings. Yeah. Yep, and bless you too. Maya Carr's class is ongoing. She teaches an intro class and an advanced class to Tai Chi and also teaches the martial arts occasionally and also uh, acupuncture. So a woman who has just a ton of history and a ton of knowledge to impart, obviously. You can find her at M-A-E-Y-A-C-A-R-R, Maya Carr. Thank you so very much. I'll never forget that conversation. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins & Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who supported me from the very beginning in manlistening.com, in her words, the podcast, and now voicelocket.com. Check it out, voicelocket.com. Thanks so much.
thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. <laughs>